We are in a series that's a little bit different. We're, we're calling it I'm Just Asking. And we have begun by saying that uh, this is a safe place for us to ask questions, to have our doubts, and to try to measure our faith against our doubts and so on. And so we're, we're pressing through. And I have a question to begin with this morning. And I'm going to just give you a couple of minutes at your tables. And the, the question may seem very obvious, but I think it's not quite so obvious. Here it is. Wh- whose book is this? So I, I, don't, I don't want the person to raise his hand whose book it is, right? But I want you to answer the question, whose book is this, okay? So just turn around and, and either say to people, what's he getting at? Or give an answer. And I think there are a few answers that might come along. So whose book is this? Let's talk about that. So the idea is I talk about the new book. That's you the should be, premise. You should be walking and talking. Like that's I, what I do, right? Okay, I'll go. Because I have a long history of walking you, and talking. Right, so you, you stay there and come around the corner. Okay. All right. I'll come around the corner like dramatically or? Like you do. Come around Rob Bell style. Uh, like, hi friends. Yeah. <laughs> no glasses, no shaved head this time. Just, <laughs> just Rob Bell walking and talking. All right, okay. here we go. You know, we all have storms in our life. <laughs> you realize you're just coding yourself. No. Can we just go get some tacos? Sure. Good. And then but, we can just talk, and then you can just add whatever you want to ask about the book, and we can just talk about that. Okay. Uh, On the way to tacos. Is the Bible inerrant? <laughs> when someone uses, like, without error or inerrant or infallible to describe the Bible, they're essentially saying they wish they had a different kind of book. The Bible doesn't exist in those categories. Nobody has to be conflicted about the Bible. You don't have to get all tied up in knots about it. You can just read it and engage with it. Let it be whatever it is. I've heard people ask, you know, what do you do if you read something in the Bible and you don't agree with it? What? Like whether I agree with it or disagree, that's irrelevant. What's interesting is why did people tell these stories? Why did people feel the need to write these things down? And why did these stories, poems, rants, why did they endure? Why have they lasted for thousands of years? Who is this book for? Everybody. And that's actually the problem. What do you mean? Is that religion has hijacked the Bible and so we need to take it back. So for a lot of people, the Bible is a religious book. It exists over there with those people. When it is first and foremost a book about what it means to be human, it's for all of us. What about uh, David and Goliath? That's in the book. How about Revelation? That's in the book. What about heaven? That's in the book. Not in the book. Calvinism. That's who? Can I ask you about Jonah and the whale? That's in the book. What about the Bible? That's in the book. <laughs> okay. That guy's Rob Bell. May have heard about him. So I, I grew up in Belfast with um, uh, my friend was the pastor's kid. His name was Eddie Dobson, and uh, Eddie Dobson became the pastor of um, a big Baptist church in Grand Rapids called Calvary Baptist Church. And the, they hired a youth pastor, and the youth pastor was wildly successful. 
and then became sort of larger than life, and he was this Rob Bell. So Rob Bell became in Grand Rapids, having started his own um, church at, w with the blessing of Eddie and Calvary Church from which he came. Um, Mars Hill Church became very popular, and there were, there were um, pilgrimages of people that went to hear Rob Bell teach. He's a brilliant, brilliant teacher. Well, Rob Bell um, sort of thought outside of the box or drew outside of the lines, and that became almost his kind of shtick, and people were drawn to that, and, and still are. But something very interesting happened. Um, Rob has written some provocative books that are very worth reading, um, and he, he wrote a book called Love Wins, which, which is an answer to the question of who, uh, who gets saved and who doesn't get saved, and what if, those kinds of questions that we do want to have a look at here. But when, when he published that book, um, there's a movement called uh, the Gospel Coalition, and we'll talk about what a coalition is in a, in a few minutes, but in the midst of all of this, um, one of America's leading pastors um, published a byline that simply said, farewell, Rob Bell, right? So as a leading pastor, as a leading evangelical, his take on the publishing of this book was farewell, Rob Bell, right? So the question that I want to ask this morning, the, the question that I want us to work on, is honestly the matter of who, who has custody of this book. So who gets to say something like farewell, Rob Bell? You know, who does he speak for when this pastor says such a thing? Um, who is it that decides who's on the right side or the wrong side of an issue and, and so on? So when, when we think about the Bible, what I want to talk about is who says that what they say the Bible says is... I can tell by the screwing noises that it's, it's working, right? So the question is, whose, whose book is this? And what that means is to ask, who gets to say what the Bible says and means? So when someone um, goes a little off track, we might say like our friend Rob Bell, um, who gets to say, farewell, Rob Bell? This is a very good book, by the way, if, if you're interested in the, the question of what kind of a book is the Bible. Um, Rob Bell's book on the Bible is, is lovely. Um, it, uh, it basically appeals to the general population and says, what does an ancient book of poetry and all the rest have to say about our lives? And he brings some lovely insights into our understanding. Similar to the things that Mike brought up last week, that I think while there may be those who are insiders, who are fine with the faith and can accommodate the story of Abraham and Isaac somewhat with discomfort, but nonetheless that's part of our understanding. Um, a little light shone on that might have someone who is not in our fold say, oh, okay, so that 
brings me a little bit farther down the field in terms of what that might mean. Uh, Rob Bell does the very same thing with other parts of the Bible and so on, where you might go, oh, okay, well, I had no idea that that was the context in which it was written, or that that would have been the mindset of the folks that were reading it the first time. So it's a, it's a great book for you, and also if you're interested in, in a book for a person that's not inside the doors of the church. What then do we make of the question, um, whose book is this? So we're really saying, forgive me, I'm just asking, who says? Kind of like the, the, the two kids at home and the older sister, I think it usually is, goes, nah, 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 and the younger brother, and I think it's usually him, he says, who says? Well, the older sister says, I say, and mom says, but right, it's, it's always an appeal to, okay, who's the authority here? I mean, who gets to make the rules? So who gets to make the rules about the Bible? Whose book is this? What did you say to that question? Whose book is this? What are some answers? It's our book. There are no wrong answers here, okay? So at least there may not be wrong. There, may, there might be a wrong answer I haven't thought of. It's our book, yes. What else? It's God's book. God's love letters to us, All right? Okay. Who says? So down through time, um, if we begin actually just at the time of Jesus, the answer to this question has shaped a whole lot of the history of the church. And I think the answer to this question is pivotal for where the church is now. This is why we're talking about this sort of thing, right? Because we're talking not only about us who are inside a church building, but we're talking about us and for us, and for people who don't come inside church buildings for this very reason, that they aren't sure that the people who claim we say so are correct in what they say when they say, we say so. So back in the time of Jesus, the, the first answer to the question, whose book is this? The answer is, it's the Pharisees' book, right? So, so what they have in the Old Testament scriptures, when they want to know, what does this mean? Um, when does this apply? To whom does this apply? they would say, we must ask the teachers of the law. So they're the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, you know, the zealots, they're all kinds of parties. But, but all of these parties claim that they have the authority of the history of their religion and that they will give you the answer. They will give you case study. They will give you situation responses to the questions about what the Bible means. So whose book is this? Well, it's our book. So you can say whatever you want, but that doesn't really matter because it's our book. In fact, there's usually only one of these books around in a town, so it'll be in the custody of the synagogue. Um, they will read it together, and when they read it together, then they will ask, what does this mean? And the Pharisee will have the right answer. So that's simple. 
From there, it went on to our understanding that the apostles had the right answer. So when we had the collected scriptures, and as the New Testament scriptures were collected further from the Old Testament scriptures, um, when, we, when we wanted to know, well, whose book is this? Who, who's going to give us the authoritative answer to our questions about this book? The next answer in time was it's the apostles, right? Because they were with Jesus, and we believe that this is a book about Jesus. And since they were with Jesus, we can ask them how true the letters are that we now have. How true are the accounts to what Jesus said and did? Did you see him do this? Yes. Did you hear him say this? Yes. Well, if there's an apostolic stamp on what we are believing, then we can say, okay, we're good. We can trust this book because the people who own this book, the apostles, they are here to tell us that what you're hearing is the truth. That, that's a record that is dependable on what this book is. So whose book is this? Well, it was the Pharisees, and then in Christianity, it became the apostles. Then things became a little more different and a little more difficult because the actual practical question when it was asked was answered by, well, it's the bishop's book. So what happened is that as the church began to grow, the church collected in various sundry places, and usually the town was identified as the place of a church. So the church at Ephesus, for example, would have been one way to identify a collection of believers. And in each of these churches, um, there were at least one, if not more, bishops appointed in these churches. And the bishops, whom we usually now call elders, because the same Greek word is used for both, um, but in the vernacular, these bishops of the church were the ones that you could count on um, to be trustworthy in the way that the scriptures were read and understood and put into practice. So whose book is this? Well, it, it's, all, it's all of our book, but who's the one who gets to say that you're on the right or wrong side of what the book means. Well, the bishop is, right? And that becomes even more complicated when there is one bishop who is more equal than others, right? All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, right? The bishop of Rome, who was a peer with the other bishops in the various other towns, actually had more clout than the others because he had the bigger church. He had the Rome church, which was more of the mother church. If the Jerusalem church had not fallen into persecution so, so severely, it might have been their call, but it became the call of the church at Rome to be the key church in the developing world of Christianity. So who do you ask about whether we're right or wrong? You ask the Bishop of Rome. You could ask any bishop, but any bishop will give you any bishop's answer, and the Bishop of Rome's answer trumps everybody else's answer. I, I have told myself don't use the word trump so often because... 
It's misleading. Well, the Bishop of Rome became the problem. Because the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, became the impediment in the church to the Bible being what the Bible, we believe, is intended to be for God's people and among God's people. And so there arose, and this was over centuries of time, there arose a cadre of people who challenged the Bishop of Rome. Because when the Bishop of Rome spoke, it was ex cathedra, which means it was spoken from on high, it was spoken with authority. If the Bishop of Rome said so, there was no challenging it. You could not dispute the Bishop of Rome's edict. You could not dispute the Pope's ruling. And that is still, in the Catholic Church, pretty much the, the rule of the day. Um, what is a papal edict? Um, how, how binding is a papal edict, right? Um, and it's people asking the question, who says? And one answer is, well, the Pope says. You know, his holiness says. So, therefore, we are bound to follow his interpretation of this book. It is our book, but you know what? Actually, it's his book. And the reformers came along and they said, as far as we can tell, the way the Bishop of Rome interprets the Bible is not what the Bible clearly says. So the Bishop of Rome has layered onto the Bible ways of appealing to God um, that aren't actually mandated in the Bible. So the Bible seems to be largely about grace, and the Pope seems to be largely about works. The Catholic Church also, which is not an us-them thing, by the way, because we were the Catholic Church. I mean, it was us. It wasn't Protestants and Catholics back then. We were together in the mess that the Church had become as it was um, caught up in society, politically um, inseparable from the empire, um, so that there was this Christendom model of things, that the Church and the empire were one thing, and that got muddy, and Luther and Calvin, etc., read the Bible and said, the Bible does not require us to do what His Holiness requires us to do. So what we'll do is we'll go on down there to the church and we'll, we'll hammer something onto the door of the church and it will be our protest. It'll be our statement um, that we're not going to be under this thumb any longer. We're not going to listen to His Holiness any longer. As you know, it got them in a heap of trouble. But the Reformation came about, and in the Reformation, the Bible came again into a place of prominence where it, properly understood, should be the one that has the authority in our lives. After the Reformers, um, we'll make a quick hop, skip, and jump to pastors, because that's where we come in. So we largely are a post-Reformation church. Um, the Protestant church is the church of the last several centuries that has believed in the Bible, has, has believed things like um, only scripture and justification by grace and uh, all of the doctrines of the Protestant church that kind of pulled us away from the, the errors of the church in the pre-Reformation times, 
then we have in certainly in the Western Church we have the churches led by pastors, and actually for a hundred years or so, the answer to the question uh, whose book is this might practically be it's it's the pastor's book. Whatever the pastor says must be right. And certainly my parents' generation uh, were committed to that, that as long as they thought the guy in the pulpit knew what he was talking about, they were fine. They didn't have to worry about it too much because he read his Bible, he had been to school, um, he prayed a lot, so whatever he said must be right, and we're good with that. Um, so uh, people talk about sitting under the ministry of the word. And I, I remember thinking this was so curious one time in a church where I was a pastor not far from here, and my father-in-law was attending the church. And someone said to him, you know, how is it to be in your son-in-law's church? And he had said, well, I have sat under his ministry for many years. And I thought, what a curious way to talk about things, right? What does it mean to be under his ministry? Oh, you poor thing, if you are under his ministry for all these years, right? But, but that was the day, um, and, and it, it trailed along with it the whole history of the Western Christian Church and the place of the Bible in the middle of all of that. So certainly we trust the pastors, and we trust them because they've been vetted. You know, um, they have been uh, examined, they, they've learned the things they need to learn, they've had their ordination councils and committees and so on, um, and, and I've been through my deal of those. Some of you have as well, where you're terrified by an examining group of people who are going to decide whether you have a job or not when it comes to the bottom line. So um, I, had, I, I left one denomination, was the Associated Gospel Churches is where I was, and I was coming to the Fellowship Baptists. It was my stepping stone before getting to the Christian Missionary Alliance. Right? So I was at um, Bramley Baptist Church with Kevin and Tracy there and boys. Um, and so I had to be ordained by the Baptists. Well, I was already ordained by the AGC, so um, they convened an ordination council, and they grilled me with questions for like two hours, and it was all the typical questions that everybody has, not, um, but they, they were going to try to weed me out, like what, where can we make him trip up? Where can we ask a question where he'll cite the wrong book or the wrong scripture verse or something? Um, and there's a, there was a very gracious pastor named Gord Freeland who just went home to be with the Lord a couple of months ago. <clears throat> they sent me out from the room. And then Gord came out. And he sat down beside me and said, Ian, they think you're soft on baptism. So he said, soft on baptism. How, how, how do you get to be soft on baptism? I know it's a Baptist church. So there must be some formula, there must be some thing I should be saying so that they can check a box. You know, that's what we were doing. Um, so he said, I tell you what, um, he's, let's just sit here for 10 minutes, and then I'll go back in and say you're fine. So we sat, Gordon and I, we sat there for 10 minutes, chatted about who knows what. And then he went back into the room and assured them that I was not soft on baptism. 
I probably am by some of their definitions, but he got me in, right? And the people in the pew were comforted by Ian had been ordained uh, by the denomination. He'd been examined by his fellow pastors. And so, phew, we're all good. The day then changed into a very strange period of evangelicalism. When North American evangelicalism was led by super pastors. There was a conference convened for celebrity pastors. Right? Just think about that. How do you get to be a celebrity pastor? Would you want to be a celebrity pastor? Should you want to be a celebrity pastor? Well, nonetheless, this conference was for celebrity pastors. I don't know how you qualified. They didn't send me an invitation. No idea, right? Did you get one, Mike? No, I didn't. John? No. What was happening? The church was taking a turn towards super teachers. And whatever these super teachers told us, we said, okay, that must be right. Whose book is this? Well, it's, it's our book. But the gatekeepers, those who have custody of this book, they're the super pastors. And, and some of them are still around. And, and this is not necessarily to disparage the gifts or um, ministry of some people, but there are the Joel Olsteins that you listen to on the TV, and America thinks what Joel says is true. They, they will do what he says because they believe that he has the goods. Um, so it's his book. However he reads it to them, however he interprets to them, is, is what they're happy with. Um, it, it has been Bill Hybels for our kind of, of church. Uh, it's been Rick Warren at Saddleback. It, it has been good people with great gifts, but we have basically handed over to them the keys to the scriptures and said, whatever you tell us, we're pretty sure must be right. Because you're smart guys and you go to conferences and you're connecting, you're networking all over the place. So um, we'll let you be the ones who, who tell us what the Bible means and what we should do with it. Well, then we came to, and I'm, I'm almost on this little litany thing here, but we came to the day of coalitions because as it was noticed that some of these guys didn't agree with each other, um, then there came about these networks of super pastors who basically looked across the fence and said, N -n -n no, not his stuff. So we will write him out. Farewell, Rob Bell. It was a coalition that said, what he says, no. Farewell, Rob Bell. So they got to be those who would decide. And they are still around today. There are coalitions, not more than a handful of them, but they're basically examining what the church is talking about and teaching and saying who is in and who is out. If you're smart, you stay under the radar. You don't let them notice you. Um, because they will come fishing for uh, clues that they might hear 
about what your position is on this, that, or the other thing. And it brings us to a time when all of that in the history, I think the population is saying, says who? And watching what has happened in evangelicalism in the last 10 years, the general population says, I'm not sure who has the definitive answer on what the Bible means, but I do not trust the church. Do we understand that? I do not trust the church. It has proven to be untrustworthy. Um, it has been led by people who have told us things that they should live by, and then they don't. And so we don't trust the church. There, there's also um, um, just a disillusionment with any kind of authority. So we're, we're living in a very me-oriented generation and culture where we value our own conclusions above anything else. We don't trust generations in the past. We don't trust institutions. I trust me. I trust what I think about. I trust about um, how I process things and, and how I get to the conclusions. So when it comes to the Bible, it's, it's not the church's book anymore. It, it's my book, and it's a book that I'm interested in um, understanding and practicing for my life. So here is what the church has been and has appeared to become um, to a world that is not reading the Bible because it thinks or it has been told the Bible doesn't belong to it. It belongs to the church and it belongs to the pastors of the church and belongs to the things that the church believes, which often are not what I'm comfortable with believing. So we'll, we'll just leave it out there. Um, I'm spiritual, not religious. There we go. The church has become um, a set of guardians for Christianity in the church. Um, it has become more like a host. Um, it has become more like the possessor of something, religion, religious books, religious practices. Um, it has been a custodian of the books. So, you know, you have the coalitions who say, well, this book is in our custody. Let's make sure nobody veers too far from what we have agreed on before. Um, it has been a group of converters. So as far as the world is concerned, and they look over at the church, and they ask, what does the church want? What the church wants is to maintain its, its property. Um, what the church wants is to convert us to something else. The church wants to be a set of missionaries who are sent to us to bring us some message or something. The church are more like colonists. They're, they're establishing their colony, their colonial in the way they approach Christianity and so on. The church is full of preachers. It is full of gatekeepers. Um, we are in, we have closed the door, we sometimes open the door to let people in only if they understand the terms of the game, which include whose book this is, it's our book, thank you very much. We may have had a bit of a scramble to make sure that we know the right person who has the answers, 
but it is our book. Thank you very much. It's, it's not, you know, it's in the religion section. Right? It's in the religion section. What transfers then over to the world apart from those who are insiders is that in the context of guardians, people can only get permission from guardians. From hosts, then everybody else is a guest. Um, from those that are possessors, then people can only receive from whatever it is that possessors have. From custodians, we may grant them access. From converters, they presume what we want is converts. From missionaries, they presume that we think that they are the lost ones that we as missionaries are to find. Um, from those who are colonial, they presume we want to colonize them. That's, that's our calling, that's our job. If we are preachers, they are sinners. If we are gatekeepers, they are applicants to get in. And all the while, the bristles of the back of the neck of millennials and their cultural uh, generation around them are saying, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Who gives you the right to tell us what the Bible says? Who, it's, it's all self-appointed. You have little clubs that decide who it is that is in and who is out. Um, and quite frankly, we would like to make our own decisions. The problem is that there isn't too much of an inclination on the part of those who are not church attenders to, to read the Bible. I mean, the world does read the Bible, but it, it doesn't seem to, to, to seize the Bible with the kind of energy that we believe it ought to seize the Bible with without its trappings around it. So the very first thing that, that someone does who is not a church person is to assume that reading the Bible is reading your book, the church's book. Um, and it, they may presume that it means I'm going to have to buy into things that I'm pretty sure I don't agree with because that's all I've heard of what they say the Bible says. But suppose the people all around us had unfettered, unhindered access to the Bible as the beautiful book that it is. And that's Rob Bell's pitch. He's, he's saying, it's not what you think. It, it's not the kind of book that you think it is. In, in the context in which the Bible is moored, it often looks like that kind of a book because in a, in a Roman Greek society, right and wrong and law and justice and courts and all of that um, lead to the kinds of letters that seem to be letters on law and permissions and things that are forbidden and so on. But the Bible is a book full of, of beautiful poetry. Right? It's, it's a book full of angst. It's a book full of stories. It's a book all about us. It's not a book about religion. And unfortunately, that's the category that we have placed it in. When we categorize our books, we put Bible under religion or sacred books or something else. What I'm saying this morning is what's the best way to read the Bible? It's to read it differently than you've ever read it before. First of all, get the message. 
like literally the message or a Bible that's going to make you think twice about a passage that you thought you got. Um, read a book like Rob Bell's book where he says, this is the kind of thing that was going on in society and why this would be an interesting spin on things. Um, read the Bible for the value of its relationships, of the stories, the good stories of the Bible. Stories are still the currency of, of all of us. So we ought not to be um, pitching doctrine. We ought not to be sorting through and checking boxes. We ought to be telling stories, stories about our own faith, stories about the faith of people in the Bible. Um, let me finish by reminding you of, of some of the things that we get in the Bible about the kind of ways that we interact with the scriptures. So this is uh, a piece of art um, that's entitled Finding Jesus in the Midst of the Teachers. So here's a 12-year-old, and he goes to the place where all the teachers are hanging out, and he astonishes them with his wisdom about the scriptures. But what I love about this painting is the way it's, it's, it's a group of people engaged. This is a 12-year-old kid, and he's, he's impressing them with what he knows and listening to him. So look at some of the expressions. Some of the expressions are doubtful. Some are intrigued. Some are you know, motivated. But the point is, um, it's, it's not a picture of someone who has custody. It, it's a picture of a group of people who are dynamically interacting with the Bible, with the scriptures, and they're impressed. Another story of the New Testament is this person, the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's riding in his chariot, and he's reading a Bible. And you, you want to stop there and say, wait a minute, how do you get a, how do you get a person, a, a, an official, to read the Bible? And then he, he, all of a sudden, you know, out of nowhere, literally, comes this guy, climbs up, climbs up in the chariot and says, do you get what you're reading? He says, I have no idea what he's talking about here. And the kind of dynamic interaction that comes along after that leads him to faith, right? The New Testament was a situation in which apostles usually would write a letter, and then the church would meet, and they would read the letter and try to figure it out. So they have said that we have moved in evangelicalism from the sage on the stage to the guide at the side. And I think we probably need to go farther than that and say, you know what? Why don't we put the scriptures in the middle of all of us? Because you're right. If I have fooled you by thinking that a microphone gives me authority, I don't think I have. The authority you have is that God created you and loves you and wrote you a book. And he wants to know what you think of that book. And he wants you to tell one another what you think of that book. He wants you to say, you know, I was going through a really, really hard time. It could be any kind of a hard time. And I came to this psalm, and I let this psalm 
run around in my head and my heart and my soul. And this psalm was my salvation. What kind of a psalm is it? Like what category? How do they classify that psalm? How do you know that's in the... I don't know. I just know that there's something about this psalm that is godly, that is for my soul, and that changes my life all the time. That that's what the Bible should be to us. It's not something to master, not something to make sure you read through in a year. Not, that's not a bad idea. Right? But it's something to get a hold, to grip your heart. Um, what if instead of reading the Bible, we let the Bible read us, is what one writer has said. So all of this this morning to say, you know what, we're at a time in history where nobody has been granted custody of the Bible by those who need to have access to it. There is a small group of the population called evangelicals, and they are still sorting through the coalitions and the camps and the categories. But the world out there doesn't even know what they're talking about. And the world out there is still interested in this book. It is still the bestseller for some reason. But the evangelical church has to get out of the way and stop telling them you have to believe these 10 things before you're allowed to read our book. We need to say to them, read our book. Our book will, will speak for itself. Our book is incredible. Um, and it's not just a history book. It's not just a theology book. It's not just any book. It's everything. Um, and God has wisely committed it to us. So I'm just asking, whose book is this? The right answer should be, it is the book for this world. It's everybody's book. So let's try to get the wrapping off of it. Let's try to get the version off of it that says this is the book that the Baptists use or this is the book that the King Jamesers use, this is the book that uh, the King James people aren't allowed to read or that stuff, right? It's this book that is timeless and powerful and uh, if it can have its way, it'll do amazing things. Father, we pray that you will... Um, Excite us again about the scriptures. If for any of us they have become dead and lifeless, forgive us, God, we pray, and drive us back. Drive us back to the hard parts that we thought we needed to just set aside. Drive us back to the controversies. Drive us back to the passages that people are saying th mean some things that are uh, just astounding to us that anybody would think that that's what you would believe or should. Um, but Father, take us inside the pages that we might let you and it speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name.